You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands, even winds and water, and they obey him? To continue the Valentine's Day season celebration, I have a short story for you and your sweetheart this morning. And if you were an English major in college, you'll really enjoy this. A malapropism walks into a bar looking for all intensive purposes like a wolf in cheap clothing, muttering epitaphs and casting dispersions on his magnificent other who takes him for granted. Granted. Grant, granite. There we go. Takes him for granite. So, man, I want you to look over at your magnificent other and, and pat her on the shoulder if it's been tense this morning or put your arm around her if you're feeling pretty good and say to her, I don't take you for granite. I realize you're a human being. I'm actually seeing guys do that. That's so funny to me. <laughs> and uh, tell him, I know that you're not a stone, and, uh, but you're a human being, and uh, I'll never take you for granite. So what a touching moment, huh? Right there. No wonder we have so much chaos in the world. You know, we don't even communicate well with one another. In fact, I bet there's a, a few guys that, that wouldn't know what malapropism means if uh, you gave them five clues. In fact, they probably wouldn't understand the uh, nature of what Mike Tyson was saying after a particularly tough boxing match when he said, I'm fading into Bolivian. <laughs> so there's, there's probably two or three men here this morning that prefer decapitated coffee in the evening, <laughs> helps him sleep. And, uh, and so, ladies, if that's your man, go ahead and pat his hand and uh, assure him that you're my big block of granite. So, trust me, he'll take that as a condiment. <laughs> I was worried about that one. I really was. I, I thought the stones would come out. People would start texting Jim, come back soon. It's really bad. We live in a world where chaos is at war with order. In the 1980s, there was this mysterious and deadly scary disease that began killing tens of thousands of people in the United States, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And uh, no one knew what it was, but we knew what the symptoms were. It weakened a patient's immune system so severely that they began to be vulnerable to rare forms of cancer, pneumonia, and frightening infections. Doctors named it Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, popularly known as AIDS. 
Part of the human's immune system are T cells which fight infection. A normal T cell count is about 1,000 uh, per cubic millimeter of blood, but with an AIDS infection, T count cells drop to the low hundreds. And without a robust immune system, we are susceptible to disease. Viruses are a tricky opponent for our immune systems. For example, the chickenpox virus can be dormant. It can hide in our nerve cells for decades, then sometimes awaken to cause painful shingles. Some of us have experienced that. The battle between a virus and an immune system can be downright deadly. Scientists have found that untreated AIDS, there can be 10 billion particles produced by the, uh, the virus and then cleared by the immune system each and every day, 10 billion. It's hard to believe. It's a battle of life and death between the chaos of the virus and the order of our immune system. And that's what today's scripture is about. It's about the battle between chaos and order. We're going to do something different. If you'd put the slide up, Matthew, right now, we want you to pull your phones out, seriously, and go to slido.com and then enter in 481367, and there will be an A, a B, and a C that you'll see there, and choose one of them, and then we're going to see what the results are on this. A is, I am in a storm in my life. B, people I care about are going through a storm. Or C, no storms, it's clear sailing for me. So go ahead and pull your phone out and do that. And then Matthew, let me know when that's ready. So today's scripture is this battle between chaos and order. And the first one is the account of the deadly storm on Lake Tiberias, which is the other name for the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of a misnomer because it's a freshwater lake. It's a huge lake. The Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills and on the east by desert, and so which causes hot air and cold air to collide, and so it results in these gale force winds that come down and these storms like what we read about in Luke chapter 8. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long. It's eight miles wide, and it allows the wind to whip up these these huge waves. In fact, in 1992, a 40-plus knot wind, which on the Buford scale is called a fresh gale, whipped up 10-foot waves that crashed into the, to the uh, town of Tiberias, uh, swamping boats, flooding homes, causing millions of dollars worth of damage. Notice in verse 23 that it says, a squall came down. In other translations, it says, it descended. The Greek word used that, that's, that's came down or descended, is katabino, which is the root of our meteorological term katabatic, which means a downhill wind. That's the wind that's being described in this scripture. I remember one time Colleen and I were on a dinner cruise off Maui in Hawaii, and the wind picked up, and so the waves and the chop of the ocean, you know, the boat started to really rock, and I remember the railing on the the ship was, was lined with individuals who uh, were feeding the fish after having their expensive dinner that evening. That's what the, the ocean can do. And that's what it was happening. Water was literally coming into the boat. So these hardened, experienced fishermen were like, we're going to drown. And they were absolutely terrified. Do we have the results yet? Okay. People like uh, 
People I care about are in a storm, 73%. I am in a storm of life, 16% of people here, and no storms, clear sailing for me, nine, nine, it's going down. 11%, 9%. It's, somebody needs to make up their mind, you know? <laughs> are you in a storm or not? A simple question. 73% though. Uh, three out of four people here are saying somebody I care about is in a storm. It's 16%, close to 20%. I'm in a storm of life right now. Huh, that's very interesting. Thank you. Well, the storm that Jesus and the apostles were experiencing is an example of external chaos, which can come into our lives. Like the apostles, sometimes we have to navigate a storm in life we didn't anticipate, and it can be absolutely terrifying. It could be a sick loved one. It could be a loss of a job. The second account that I'm going to teach on this morning is the next account, which is finally they got to the other side of the lake, and as soon as they got there, a demon-possessed guy, a crazy man, comes down and confronts them. Talk about a bad day becoming worse. You go through a storm, you think, okay, finally I'm on, I'm on ground, and then uh, a crazy demonized man shows up. And, the, and what this story reminds us is not only that there's external chaos, but there's internal chaos in life. For instance, maybe you know returning combat vets, I know several, who come back from war and they have the internal chaos of PTSD. And so wouldn't you agree with what we're seeing in the scripture this morning, that life on planet Earth is a pitched battle between chaos and order? whether that's external chaos with the global pandemic that we've been going through for two years or the internal chaos of anxiety or depression. Chaos seems to touch and fill our world. It's part of life. David Gooding said it this way, we live in a universe that is lethally hostile to human life. So chaos, chaos, we see chaos everywhere. Which reminds me of uh, the story of a young rabbi who was struggling in his new congregation, and during the Friday night Sabbath service, half of the congregation would stand during the prayers, and half of them would sit during the prayers, and then they would yell at each other that what they were doing was the true tradition of the synagogue. So finally, in desperation, the young rabbi goes and, and visits at the nursing home, the elderly founding rabbi, and the young rabbi said, Sir, was it the tradition of the synagogue for people to uh, sit during prayers? And the retired rabbi said, no. And so, ah, the young rabbi said, then it was the tradition to stand during prayers. To his surprise, the elderly rabbi said, no. And so frustrated, the young rabbi said, well, what we have now is complete chaos. To which the elderly rabbi replied, ah, that was the tradition. <laughs> So from today's scripture, let's learn some lessons from this scripture on how to navigate chaos in life. The, the first lesson is very powerful. Jesus values making us strong as much as he values keeping us safe. That's kind of good news, and it's kind of sobering news at the same time. Jesus values making us strong as much as keeping us safe. Jesus led the apostles into the storm and being confronted by the demon-possessed uh, man. So we learn an important lesson here, that sometimes Jesus takes his followers into the storm. Jesus modeled what Brene Brown wrote 
We can choose courage or we can choose comfort, but we can't have both, not at the same time. Hmm, interesting. Jesus set the course. Let's go to the other side. And we sang this morning, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word." And they didn't do that. He said, we're going to the other side. And in the midst of the storm, they thought, we're not going to make it. Jesus fell asleep. He was exhausted with the schedule he kept. As you read in the Gospels, it's, it's amazing that he had the physical stamina to do it. And this squall descends onto the lake to the point that the boat's being swamped and it's sinking and these men are panicking. And here's the uncomfortable truth. Jesus led them into that storm. Why? In 1949, Dr. Joseph Campbell wrote, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which described what is known as the hero's journey. George Lucas uh, credits Campbell's work for inspiring the, the $7 billion-plus Star Wars franchise. The hero's journey, in short, is an ordinary person thrust into an adventure that they did not plan, in which they learn a lesson, they win a hard-fought uh, victory, and armed with new knowledge, they return home transformed. And Jesus wants his followers to be on a hero's journey. Jesus knew for his apostles to face giants in the future, which they would, all of them except John were martyred, for instance, that they needed to overcome bears and lions today. I'm not saying that God causes or wills every source of chaos in our lives. People have free will. Satan has a vote. But I am saying all things work together for good to those that are called according to God's purpose. I want to remind us, on the one hand, that God is our shield and fortress. God is our place of safety. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. But along with that, it's equally true that God is our conquering king who leads us into battle against chaos. The result is this hero's journey, we develop stronger faith and deeper wisdom and unflinching courage. We don't become expert skiers by spending all of our time on the bunny slope. Remember what God said to Joshua before they were going in to take the land. He said, be strong and courageous. Hmm. Followers of Jesus walk the hero's journey, which ends with us being transformed into becoming more like Jesus, who courageously faced the cross head on. Jesus values making us strong as much as he values keeping us safe. The apostles were safe even when the boat was taking on water because Jesus was with them. So you see, we are safe not because we avoid all storms in life, but because Jesus promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Ron Rollheiser said it this way, isn't it the task of the Holy Spirit to introduce some madness and intoxication into the world? Why this propensity for balance and safety? Don't we all long for one moment of raw risk, one moment of divine madness? I imagine if the apostles heard that quote after they'd been through that storm, they'd probably reply, oh, Ron, not really. <laughs> you know, a little safety sounds good. Which brings us to another lesson from this scripture. When a storm of life hits, it's imperative that we trust and rest in Jesus. 
The book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember that Peter, when he was walking on the water, began to sink what? When he took his eyes off of Jesus and put his eyes on the waves. Too often we have our eyes on the waves and it overwhelms us. You see, the apostles' problem wasn't that they were afraid, it was that they were panicked. Fear is normal for a human being, but panic is optional. Panic is when our brains shut down and our emotions just run amok. Uh, fear is not the opposite of faith. I think panic is the opposite of faith. God understands that we're human beings and that we get afraid, but he tells us to fight fear, to keep it from degenerating into panic. Panic forgets that God is in control. Panic throws out self-control. Panic is that which makes us quit before even giving up, giving a fight in the face of the storm. So maybe instead of panic, the apostles should have gently awakened Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you know, if you nap too long, you won't sleep well tonight, so we're doing this for your good. And by the way, if you want to do something about this storm, that'd be much appreciated. Psalm 56.3 is wonderful. It says it this way, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's saying, when I am afraid. We all fight fear sometime, except for probably about 2% of us, and they were in that. They were the 11-9, 11-9. Those are the people that don't feel fear. Uh, we feel fear, but it says in the midst of fear, when I am afraid, what? I will trust in you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. So this verse reminds us of another important truth. Chaos wins battles, but it has already lost the war. Because that is true, that chaos wins battles, but it's lost the war. Because of that, Jesus values the ultimate more than the immediate in our lives. For the apostles, the immediate was the storm. But the ultimate was to learn to trust God in the midst of the storm. If we cooperate with God, then storms are useful in this hero's journey to make us stronger, increasing our wisdom and our resilience and our confidence. We become better, stronger people. Isaiah 25.8 talks about the ultimate victory that God has. It says this, God will swallow up death forever. That's good news. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Then Jesus taught in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In the midst of the circumstances, in Christ to have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, don't be discouraged. I have overcome the world. You see, we survive the immediate storms with assurance that in Christ we have ultimate victory. So loved ones do die of cancer. Financial reverses come our way. A divorce we never wanted is, is finalized. Sometimes it just feels like chaos wins. And chaos does win battles. But in Christ Jesus, we ultimately win. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. Chaos might win a battle today, but Jesus has already won the war for us. It's important to embrace the truth that in Christ, God calls us to be victors, not victims, no matter the circumstance we face. So we are called to fight chaos. 
God calls scientists and medical professionals to use the intellect that he has given them to find cures for viruses and even cancer. Meteorologists and engineers are called by God to find new ways to to predict the weather patterns and to build storm-resistant structures to lessen human loss of human life during natural disasters. Teachers are called by God to educate children into being empowered to be good people with strong minds who make a contribution to the human race. Police officers are called to serve and protect our community. Electricians, plumbers, general contractors use their God-given abilities and trades to provide safe homes for families. Therapists and pastors work to bring wholeness and healing to broken lives and relationships. Husbands and wives fight together against the chaos to develop healthy marriages and families. Filled with God's blessed Holy Spirit, we are to fight temptation. We are to stand against evil. We are to love, in love, to serve those who are are suffering, to push back the darkness a little bit in our world. Friends, we are all called not only in prayer, but in the jobs that we have and in our families, in our relationships, to fight chaos. We are to face and fight darkness, suffering, and evil in our world. The scripture is sobering. When we read about a demon-possessed man with over 2,000 demons in him confronting Jesus, was that we read in this scripture. And the Bible is clear that we have an enemy of our souls, an enemy of all that is good, an enemy of your your marriage and your family, an enemy against humanity, a fallen archangel named Lucifer, who is called in Scripture Satan, or the devil, the deceiver, or the accuser. A third of angels, the Bible tells us, follow Satan, rebelled against God, and they were cast out of heaven, and they're called demons. The Bible is clear that Satan is not eternal. He's not all-powerful. He was created. Yet he is more powerful than us as human beings. But only God is eternal. Only God is all-powerful. God is on the throne. God is king of the universe. It's, it's not that evil and good are, are opposite and equal forces. That's not it at all. Our God is triumphant. Jesus rose from the dead, triumphant over evil. When I was in my Doctor of Ministry program at Talbot Seminary, Dr. Neil Anderson, a trained engineer and pastor, taught a course on spiritual warfare and discipleship. After I'd already worked on this message and had this in here about uh, Dr. Anderson, Colleen came home, she's the business manager here at Rockland, and uh, told me that Pastor Paul and the pastoral team are having Dr. Anderson that's going to be here at Rockland. April 29th through 30th, and so I highly recommend that you sign up for that, and, and hopefully if my schedule allows, I'll be there also. It'd be wonderful to see him. He's an amazing guy. But he, he teaches the steps to freedom in Christ, which I used as a pastor, the church that I pastored back in the day, to help people be free from bondage to demons. And there's, there's two of our friends from our church that are sitting next to Colleen that can attest that we did that. So this comes to slido.com survey number two. And so if you would put that up there, pull out your phone, uh, phones again, now that you know what you're doing. And A is, I have had an experience I suspect was demonic. B, I know a person who has had a battle with demons. Or C, I haven't had any experience with the demonic. 
I have no idea what the results of this is going to be. It's going to be very interesting. It's instructive to see the suffering of the poor man who was tormented by demons, as we read in this scripture. He lived among the tombs rather than in a home. He was chained. He was driven into lonely and an isolated life. This person was suffering and was miserable. Jesus was right on the money when he said that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible also uh, speaks of unclean spirits. Have you ever thought about that? Um, have you ever been to a meth or a, a, a crack house? Uh, I have, and they're filthy. It's just absolutely evil, uh, how gross evil is. The Apostle John, arguably Jesus' best friend, wrote in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The world, the ancient world that Jesus was uh, born into was a scary, evil, dark place. Babies were uh, given to, as a sacrifice, burned on behalf of idols. It was terrible. And wherever paganism and idolatry and ignorance and injustice, depravity, immorality, rebellion against God, there's darkness. And where there is darkness, the devil works in power. It's interesting, Dr. Anderson taught us at, uh, in the course there at Talbot, the demonization can look like mental illness, and mental illness can look like demonization. The way to know the difference is demonization responds to prayer and deliverance while mental illness responds to medication and counseling. It's very interesting that we understand what the Bible teaches, that, that we are a multi-dimensional people. We do have the spiritual, but we also have the cognitive. We have the, our physiology, and all of these things are important, not one or the other. So science and faith are not at odds. They actually can come together. I guess that we have results on this. This is going to be very interesting. I know a person who has had battles with demons, 36%. I haven't had any experience with the demonic, 36%. Praise God, you're blessed. I have had an experience I suspected was demonic, 29%. Wow. There's good news in this. So keep listening for just a few minutes before we go to communion. There's good news in this. There's good news. The church where I served as a pastor built a school in Lucknow, India for delete children. Deletes are the untouchables. It's the lowest caste. And one Sunday, I remember I was in an open field. They had a guard next to this rickety platform that we were on. And uh, he had a, a rusty single shot, 12-gauge shotgun that he was protecting us with. I, I looked at the rust on it and I thought, boy, I hope that doesn't blow up in his face. And I also hope he doesn't have to use it. But the, during the whole hour-long service, we were outside, we were on this stage, it was about yay high, there was these women, they had long black hair, and for the entire service, they just went like this, and their hair just went around for the entire service, hour-long, they just went like this with their hair. Pastor leaned over and told me that they're, they're demon-possessed, and after the service, we'll, we'll help them. And uh, those are sobering times, it's very real. And that brings us to the most important lesson from this scripture. Notice in verse 39, Jesus tells the demonized man who's been set free, the demons are gone, he's in his right mind, and he's closed, to tell people how much God has done for you. So then notice what the scripture says there in verse 39. So the man goes home and tells the people how much Jesus had done for him. 
Then when Jesus instantly calmed the storm, remember what the apostle said? Who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this who has power over nature and power over the supernatural? And here's the point. This Jesus is God. And God is greater than the storms in life. The Bible teaches that there's one eternal creator God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have lived in joyous harmony and loving community for all eternity past, even before the birth of the universe 13.8 billion years ago. In love, this one God in three persons, blessed Trinity, created us, human beings, in their image so that we could have fellowship with them and enter into the sacred dance that they have had of joy and love for all eternity, that we may know and live with God and with one another in love for all future eternity, to be blessed and to be a blessing. It's wonderful. But the bad news is humanity rebelled against God, thus unleashing chaos that we've been talking about in our world and in our lives. To save us from the bondage and slavery and the curse of sin and Satan and hell and death, Jesus, the eternal son, came to earth, born of a virgin, so that he would be fully God and fully man. Fully God to represent God to us and fully man, except without a sin nature, to represent us before God. And Jesus went to the cross and rose on the third day victorious over Satan, demons, <coughs> hell, sin, death, victorious over chaos, so that we can be free and saved, so we can become strong and good and courageous like Jesus. And I can tell you from personal experience that the name of Jesus makes demons flee. If you're struggling with that, talk to Pastor Paul, go to this, talk to me. That's something that can be taken care of. I know that with all my heart. And please let us pray. We're in a spiritual battle. We have a tendency of making it all about politics and not seeing the big picture, which is that there is someone who wants to try to destroy us, and we beat him on our knees. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. There's victory in the name of Jesus. So the issue for us from today's scripture is this. In your heart and in your mind, deep inside of you, in the recesses of your soul, is Jesus bigger than the storms of your life? Will you trust God even when your boat is taking on water? Will you choose in Christ to be courageous in the midst of fear? I'm going to go forward and I'm going to fight the chaos which attacks my life, my family, or my business. Will you cooperate with God in the storms of life so you can become wiser and stronger and more confident? And when you graduate to heaven, there would be the hero's journey, would be the story of your life. It says in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 